as we get older, we lose our curiosity. Curiosity is a discipline. And despite whatever we've been through, focusing on what we have, human connection and relationships, which are true net worth. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a brilliant and exceptional guest to share with you today. His name is Jamie Mustard. He's a strategic multimedia consultant, artist, design, and product futurist. He has codified the primal laws of what causes anything in any medium to stand out and take hold in the human mind. His breakout work, The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out, won the Outstanding Works in Literature, OWL Award, awarded by the largest e-commerce bookseller in the world. Jamie is a resident staff writer at Forbes Ignite, the social innovation magazine of Forbes, and Rich Carlgaard, the publisher of Forbes, says that he cracked the code when it comes to magnetizing attention. His passion to teach the science and art of standing out is what we're going to talk about a lot today. And he has worked with some of the most incredible, well-known, world-leading companies of the world, such as Nike, Cisco, Intel, Adidas, Semantic, World Congress of Science and Factual Producers, Content London, and TEDx at Creative Giant, Whedon, and Kennedy. There's going to be so much to dive into. Jamie, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you here. Dr. Richard, thank you for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, we're going to talk about some really cool stuff, but I want to go back in time, use our little time machine here. And as you know, I love to know about my guests' why. Why are they doing what they're doing today? So for you, peeling back the onion, going into the world of Jamie Mustard's past, what started you on the path you're on today? What's your superhero origin story? Well, it's a great question because I think up until two or three years ago, I would have denied my why. <laughs> I'm, I'm a person that has overcome a lot and I've done it by looking forward and not really being willing to look back, right? But um, if you look at the, the beginnings of my life uh, were very rough. I was a child of extreme poverty and neglect. I grew up in slums east of Hollywood, California, towards downtown Los Angeles. My parents were in and out of my life. So I was abandoned by them and had actually lived in some institutional environments. Uh, growing up, I was semi-literate, uh, barely went to school growing up, semi-literate into my late teens. And I eventually went on to graduate from the London School of Economics. So I've had this kind of crazy life. So the way I would describe that origin is invisibility. I grew up mostly, I'm a mixed race person. I grew up mostly in uh, Mexican neighborhoods, Armenian neighborhoods, 
So back in those days, in the late 70s, early 80s, Los Angeles, you know, I would have been a brown boy in a sea of brown boys. I, I couldn't have been more invisible in that, in the kind of monotonous, sun-droned <laughs> sky of, of, of Los Angeles. So invisibility really would be my origin story, just an invisible human being that would be, had been uncertain, in certain ways discarded. Um, now, my life is, is almost the exact opposite of that. I have a friend of mine, and I always say it's so ironic, and he says, no, it's the opposite of ironic that your life is what it is now, right? But now my life is teaching some of the most successful artists, brands, CEOs, nonprofits, social change organizations in the world, how to stand out in a world overloaded with content. So it, it is, there's an incredible symmetry to that, that only a few years ago was I willing to really kind of hug the cactus and look back and see how they were related. But yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my origin story, Dr. Richard. I want to, before we transition to what has you so renowned all over the world and working with these amazing organizations, we went from, in your story, a semi-literate late adolescent kid to graduating from the London School of Economics. So I need to know, I want to know, what flipped the switch for you? What was the, the catalyst for you going from barely being able to read to getting I could read. I, 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 the pro, I could read well. You know, I always could read, and I had a thing with words. So reading was not, that was the one thing I could do. The, the issue was math. I probably had a second grade math level at 17 to 19 years old. I probably had a third grade, second grade writing level. So the problem was expression. Okay. I had the language of taking things in, um, but not the language of expression, which made me feel trapped inside myself in a lot of ways. But uh, the answer is I had, a, I had a relative that had made me an offer when I was a teenager saying, hey, if you come live at my house, and you want to, if you want to, if you can want to come and stay at my house and turn your life into something, rent is school. You can do beauty school, trade school, any kind of school. So um, I tried to go and visit when I was 16. And then uh, all your needs will be taken care of. Your, you know, clothes, medical, food, board, all you have to do is be in school. So I tried to go when I was 16, but I, my illiteracy was so overwhelming to me that I left and I went back to LA. Couldn't deal with it. And by the age of 19, I got desperate enough that with the choices I'd made, I was really looking at a life of hard labor if I didn't, you know, make some changes. So at 19, I got desperate enough that I took that relative up on their offer. And I really was just desperate to fix myself. I knew that I was broken and I started off taking remedial classes at a community college in English and mathematics. And five and a half years later, I graduated from the London School of Economics, <laughs> and nobody was more surprised than me. That relative was my grandmother, actually. And um, I remember at one point when I got accepted into the London School of Economics, she looked at me. We're sitting in her living room outside New York, New York City, and uh, she said, how are you doing this? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> but the answer, is, the answer was uh, desperation. I was desperate. And so desperation can do amazing things, Dr. Mm -hmm. Richard. Yeah. And then there's some, there are some things that I learned along the way that I try to share with people that I think can, that can help everyone. What I think is incredible about my life is the invisibility that I experienced as a child because of information overload, 
we're all now competing with all this mass messaging in the world and we've become smaller. So that invisibility, everyone of any class, of any level of success is now experiencing the same kind of invisibility that I was experiencing as a child. So that, that's, it's kind of incredible that these primal laws exist that explain why we pay attention to one thing and discard another. And that I figured I wrote them down. Yeah. So I want to dive right into that. So let's talk about what these primal laws are. Okay. I'll kind of start in an easy kind of uh, way that everyone can understand. Okay. So let's look at, say, road signs and warning labels. Okay. Where they keep us from crashing into each other and drinking poison and walking into radioactivity or burning ourselves. Right. And there's billions of these warning labels and these road signs, and they pretty much always work. They always stop, grab our attention for a second, and get us to pay attention, uh, even if it's just for a brief second. So when it comes to life and death, we always use these primal laws. The question is, is there something about a road sign or a warning label that you can apply to everything? Could you apply it to music? Could you apply it to graphic design? Could you apply it to being a painter? Could you apply it to demand generation in a small business? Could a global corporation apply it? Could a... Could a a social change organization apply? And the answer is yes. And that is the subject of the book, The Iconist. So, so you want to continue? <laughs> you know, I, I'm processing yeah. this. You've got, okay, so you, you've hooked me, you, you know, because, you know, as I'm thinking about what you brought to my attention was the frequency upon which these kind of guides are in our lives. And, and I don't just mean the road signs, but really, like everything's got a warning label on it. And I don't just mean products, but the, these things present to us in all mediums of information that we take in. And I was just kind of, you, you blew my mind about okay. this. So let's keep going. Okay, so, so there's a concept in, in the book that sounds a lot more complicated than it is. So uh, it's one of the few terms I coined in the book that it's called a block. Okay, and all a block is, I take it from what happens with, when you put a toy block in front of a baby, okay? So it'll, a baby will freeze on it. And the reason they'll freeze on it is because it's massive to them and there's an intricacy inside it. So anything massive with an intricacy inside it makes us kind of want to look. Anything kind of oversized that has a complexity, complexity in relation to it. In fact, you know, over 300 years ago, John Locke, the British philosopher that said we were all born a tabula rasa, a blank slate, um, said that... Dice and playthings, you know, toy blocks were the best way to teach children and make it a more enjoyable experience. And this, in modern research, has proven that what he said is true. In adult learning, if you use a big, oversized image with complex information, it completely transforms the way that adult relates to that information. They have higher retention. They enjoy learning more. They have a better grasp of the material and better use of the material. The problem is, is that as we get above learning, we stop communicating to each other in elementary ways. And what I would argue, and this is especially true in a world overloaded with content where we're constantly bombarded, which I'd like to get into, that adults crave this childlike communication that we see in children's workbooks even more than children do. So a block, all a block is, Dr. Richard, is this monolithic simple thing that you repeat over and over again, that you, that you can make iconic in someone's mind in five minutes 
rather than 50 years of hope, luck, or chance. You can do it in five minutes at deliberation and at will. So once something that you are deploying with repetition, that's monolithic and simple over and over, is taken into the mind of another person, it no longer ceases a block. To be, it's no longer a block. It's now a an icon of the mind. So a block is just something you create based on the rules of the book that is an icon waiting to happen. That's what I, and I can get into more detail if you would like. I might, <laughs> but I, I, so I've kind of written that down and, you know, we'll see if we have time to go back to block, but I, I do, I, I know you were excited to talk about content bombardment. Okay. The first third of my book is about content bombardment. Okay. So, and about how we all, you know, I made a claim earlier that everyone experiences now the invisibility that I experienced as a kid. I meant that very literally. In other words, we're all harder to see. We're, it's almost impossible to get the attention of those that we desire, whose attention we desire. Even if you're a very successful person, there's very successful people that hire me that go, I feel like I should be getting more attention and getting more success. Um, and they, and they feel like content overload is the reason they're not getting the traction that they think is commensurate with their effort. Okay. So um, it's not just people that, but you know, I mean, I also help startups and everything in between, right? So let's look at it like this. Say you were walking around in 1950s Atlanta or anywhere in, in small, anywhere in the world, just walking around living in your life. You were probably subject to about 250 advertising messages a day going to the, going to the grocery store, working back, billboards, magazines, TV, about 250 advertising messages a day in 1950. By 1970, that was up to 500. By the late 90s, yeah, by the late 90s, the average person was being bombarded by about five to 7,000 advertising messages a day. Okay, thought experiments today show that we're being hit with about 10 to 15,000 advertising messages a day. A person couldn't process a thousand. So now people are trying to find you among all these things that are coming at them all the time, making you almost impossible to see. It's created a haze. In, in 1998, there was a woman doing research for Microsoft and Apple named Linda Stone, who coined the term continuous partial attention to describe how we were being, all being bombarded with so much content, we're now only partially paying attention. This is before the internet was even really up and running. Okay, so if back in 1998, people were just partially paying attention. How much are people paying attention now? There's research that shows that just by having your cell phone in front of you, your IQ drops by several points. So we're all trying to get seen in a world where people are perpetually distracted and we can feel it. There's actually psychological phenomenon that's a, that, that comes from it. And that psychological phenomenon, I don't know if you want me to get into that, it's powerful and it's... Uh, it affects us in deep ways. It's not a mild problem. And again, this has come on us like a light switch, right? Um, in the stopwatch of history, 25 years of this digital overload is a flip of a light switch. And, you know, it's not just an American problem. You know, you, you can go to developing countries in India and Africa. They won't have running water but they'll have smartphones, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, so yeah, so that's that's the issue. I mean, you have to kind of look at it like this, right? So this is an example I like to give. So say I threw a golf ball at you, Dr. Richard, what would you do? If you just hit a single, me. If I threw it, I just threw a golf, <laughs> tossed a golf ball at you, what would you do? Uh, assuming you didn't hit me with the golf ball, <laughs> I would pick it up and, you know. Or maybe you would even catch it. Yeah. 
but yeah. but I, I it would stop me from what I was doing, and I would want to ask why you threw a golf ball. At me. <laughs> yeah, but if I threw ten to fifteen thousand golf balls at you, what would you do? Why? I, I'm, I'm out of there, right? Like yeah, you cower in the fetal right, position. Right, right, right. So as we're relying on all this micro <clears throat> communication, whether ads and emails and texts and DMs and private messages and all these things, you know, um, we're also overwhelmed by them and we're kind of pushing them away from us, right? I call this the, the dilution cloud. You know, there's more and more senders than ever before, more information than we could possibly process. We have an increased resistance to it, so very little is getting through, and that's what's causing the invisibility. And that's why these primal laws are so important right now. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. So I'm familiar with quite a lot of the research on what the internet does to personality functioning. And uh, so you're preaching to the choir with a lot of this stuff. And, and I know that, you know, you've kind of cracked the code here. So tell us, given this, given the overload that we get from an informational standpoint, from everything, not just cell phones, but from everywhere, how do we stand out. And whether you're a business owner or whether you're not, it's important for you to understand this information because this has a profound impact on all of our lives. So take us through, now we know a bit about the primal laws and, and the bombardment. Let's talk about how to break, I out, walk break us, out of all that. Yeah. I'll walk us through, Dr. Richard, I'll walk us through several mediums. I'll start with something really simple. We'll start with visual imagery. We'll go through music and then we'll go through conceptual and then we'll go through business. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds cool. Let's okay. do that. So let's take, why does something stand out and enter the mind? Let's talk about just visual imagery. If you were to look at two, the two artists in, you know, the global kind of zeitgeist uh, that are the most recognizable, the two most known artists in the world. If you were to go up to somebody in, you know, a bricklayer in East London, Okay, who knew nothing about art, didn't go to university. They would not necessarily recognize a Picasso, but the two artists that they would know would be Vincent Van Gogh and Andy Warhol. And that's because Vincent Van Gogh and Andy Warhol used this concept of blocks, either knowingly or unknowingly, in all of their major works. So if you look at Van Gogh, you, it's an oversized image that you understand before you have a chance to think. A man with a cob pipe a sunflower, a tree, a pair of boots, a bull, a cafe, a bedroom, a starry night. You understand the image before you have a chance to think. That will cause you, like the stop sign, to look into the technique, okay? Paul Gauguin, who also used incredibly bright colors and was Van Gogh's one-time roommate, also used, whose also work was incredibly vibrant, it takes you a second to figure out what's going on in the scene. And in that second, 
even though I like Paul Gauguin's work even more, he's one of my favorite painters, but in that second, you lose that instant connection that draws people in, okay? And that's why we all know Van Gogh today, and even though people know Gauguin, when I say his name, most people wouldn't have an image that would pop in his head. Uh, Warhol did the same thing. You, you, the image fills up the entire canvas, and you understand it before you have a chance to think. You know, a suit can, a Mao, a Marilyn, and he just repeated these over and over and over again, right? And that, in fact, the, there was a story on NPR that I heard last week that said that they did a survey of uh, economists all over the world, and they all determined in terms of value and impact, economic value and impact, that Andy Warhol is the most important artist of the 20th century. So I feel like the claims in my book are now being, being backed by global economists. But uh, so that applies to graphic design. That applies to anything that you want to communicate. Does the person get it in their lizard brain before they think? And is it relevant to them? If so, then they'll look further. That very much works with the same mechanism as a road sign or a warning label. I can explain how this works in music, okay? Again, in music, that monolithic thing that we understand before we have a chance to think is a nursery rhyme type melody over a more complex arrangement. So it's the reason Beethoven's Ode to Joy da, 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 lasts over two and a half centuries. And the reason Michael Jackson's Mama Say, Mama Sam, Umakusa is so addictive. Uh, this nursery rhyme type melody over a more complex arrangement repeated is what causes us to connect to any song and pulls us into the more complex arrangement. Uh, so it's this thing that we recognize before, again, before we have a chance to think. It's why in pop music, they call it the hook because it grabs you by the neck, pulls you in and doesn't give you a choice. So it's this monolithic thing that grabs you. And then if there's something valuable there, um, it keeps you there. That's how um, these primal laws work. Um, so that's what, so a block in music, dominant nursery rhyme type melody that affects us before we have a chance to think the same way the overwhelming visual image does. Um, and then I could say, you want to talk about how this works from a conceptual standpoint? Sure. Yeah, we're going to do conceptual than business, right? Yeah, then we'll do, we'll do conceptual than business. Okay, so, God, I'm going to have these dates wrong. But I mean, um, uh, let me see what these dates are. I'm trying to, April 1963, I think is the, when, when um, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous speech, I have a dream. Okay. And what's fascinating about that speech, it's a relatively short speech of just over 1600 words. And I can tell you that it's the most famous speech in human history. One of the things that really surprised me when I was going to school in London is everyone knows that speech. People in Malaysia know that speech. People from China, I went to an international school. People from China know that speech, right? It is the most famous speech of all time. If you take it apart, you'll find something very fascinating, as I said, very fascinating about it. Just over 1600 words in which Dr. King repeats the phrases, I have a dream or let freedom ring approximately every 85 words. So this repetitive phrase over and over and over again that we can connect to emotionally instantly, again, without thinking, who doesn't want freedom and who doesn't have dreams is what pulls us into the speech and when we even just hear one of those phrases, I have a dream, it brings back his image. Like these simple phrases, these blocks, these visual images, they, they're pack mules that carry vast amounts of information with them. As I gave the example in adult learning, 
right? They've, there's research that proves that these visual images help you carry more information. So, you know, a good example of, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela gave a, hundreds of speeches and freed a nation, but he didn't use these block phrases and were all the lesser for it. If you go 23 years earlier, June 4th, 1940, Winston Churchill went before the House of Commons to deliver what is now known as the We Shall Fight speech. At the time, it was him trying to bring the British people together. They were losing heart in the war against the Nazis, and the British people did not know if they could stay the course. It was the so, nothing to fear but fear itself speech. Right? Um, I think that that was a later one. I think this was the um, this was the one where he says we shall fight as the closer, right? So he went before the House of Commons uh, June 4th, 1940, and he parts of that speech were aired on the BBC that evening in London. And at the, in his, the closing of that speech, he repeats the words, we shall fight over and over again. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the beaches. We shall fight in the streets. We shall never surrender. We shall protect our island. We shall fight. We shall fight. We shall fight. Now it's known as the we shall fight speech. And it's, it's that repetitive phrase. And you could say that that is the second most famous speech of the 20th century probably second only to I have a dream, <laughs> okay? So uh, whether you're a pacifist using passive resistance or you're going to war, these phrases are the reason, these repetitive phrases that we instantly understand before we have a chance to think repeated are the reason we pay attention to everything. You could look at uh, George Orwell's 1984 you know, his dystopian nightmare where he de where he describes this kind of monolithic repetition as a way to manipulate people, as a negative thing. So he was right about that, about this kind of monolithic communication and what it can do. Where The only place where I would disagree is that it's not inherently nefarious. It's just how all human beings prefer to take in information. We prefer to take in complexity when anchored to large repetitive block that we can instantly connect to. And so I, you want me to keep going? Let's, like, do, we, let's do business. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'll do business by telling a story and then I'll give a modern example of how one could use what that business did, okay? So let's go back a hundred years, almost a hundred years to another time that many people would, would agree was probably at far more difficult than the time we're going through now. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were starving all over the world, okay? And that is uh, the Great Depression in, of 1929. If you, in 1932, we were in the heart of this thing, okay? And there was a guy um, during this very difficult time in America uh, named Ted Houston. And Ted was a simple guy. He had three very simple goals for his life. He wanted to be a pharmacist and own his own business. He wanted to own his own pharmacy. He wanted to raise a family and he wanted to attend Catholic mass. These were his goals, simple guy, okay? And he had something going for him that a lot of people at that time didn't have going for them. He had a small inheritance of a few thousand dollars. So when he graduated pharmacy school in 1932, he took every penny of that money and he invested it in a tiny, uh, in buying a pharmacy in the tiny town of Wall, South Dakota. Well, it didn't take Ted too long to realize that the town population 327 was busted broke. 
and that he was in the heart of depression. And absolutely no one, I mean, no one was coming into his pharmacy. And he saw his dreams slipping away. They had one thing going for them. Route, US Route 16A went right by the town. Just no one stopped in it. And one day in the, you know, in the kind of, when they were kind of down in the dumps and really not seeing a way out of their, out of their situation, Ted's wife, Dorothy, um, said, Ted, I have an idea. What are those people driving by our town and their weathered jalopies? And this is at a time where, you know, air conditioning wasn't what it is today. What do they need more than anything? And he just looked at her perplexed. And she said, cold water, right? So uh, they concocted a plan and they built this massive billboard and they hauled it out to the interstate and they started to erect it. Uh, and it had just a few simple words on it. Free ice water wall drug. Before they could even get the sign fully erected, the pharmacy was mobbed and has stayed mobbed for almost the last 100 years. One could say that it was the first viral campaign. It is a now a state landmark of South Dakota. No one goes through South Dakota without stopping at Wall Drug. It's a collection of restaurants, entertainment, gift stores. It has evolved, okay? During the World War II, Allied forces would put signs up in Europe saying how far they were from Wall Drug. In the 40s, people would go to the Great Wall of China, to Taj Mahal, to the Great Wonders of the World, to the pyramids, to Antarctica, and you'd say distance from Wall Drug signs or Wall Drug signs. So this kind of simple thing that corresponds to what somebody cares about that they can instantly understand before they have a chance to think is a very powerful thing. It can grab attention, it can generate demand, but like in the case of King or Churchill, it can motivate people to do remarkable things. These examples are so cool. These stories are so fascinating. So knowing what we've talked about, you've kind of laid this foundation. Talk to us about how to employ that with a business in 2021. Yes, Dr. Richard. <laughs> I will do that. Um, okay, so here's the thing. You have this thing called a slogan. Okay, and a slogan is a desperate attempt to create a block, to create this thing that magnetizes, right? And they're kind of ridiculous. You know, in the 50s, you had, you know, a camel a day keeps the doctor away. Or, you know, when I was growing up, it was wholesome hostess. Coke adds life. These things don't mean anything. So why, and if anything, they're repulsive. So why do businesses come up with these ridiculous phrases to try to promote their businesses? And the answer is they know they need something simple to lead with, but they don't understand why they work and they don't understand why they sometimes grab attention and why they sometimes don't. Uh, so you first have to understand that a slogan is a desperate attempt. Lehman Brothers, no family left behind. We know that's not true, right? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, a block is a, a slogan, excuse me, is a desperate attempt to create something that will actually fix attention and cause people to want to look further. So let's talk about a modern, more modern version of how that's been employed that one could use. So you can see the difference between a block statement, which is something that you can relate to that's real, and a slogan, which is repulsive, okay? In the 1970s, before there was fax machines and email and scanners and all the things that we have now, um, FedEx did a campaign 
where they put billboards everywhere that had a really simple phrase on it, when it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. Now, before fax machines and email, that was a gut punch. If you had a closing on a house, if you had an inheritance, if you had a life insurance policy, all any of those things, or any document that was connected to a date, that was a gut punch. So that is a statement of result that is, is an emotional need of every single person that needs it at some point. So that is a block, kind of like a free ice water wall drug, as opposed to we're loving it, which doesn't mean, <laughs> which means nothing. So in a business, Dr. Richard, there's always an intersect point. Businesses exist to solve problems. Okay. So there's always an intersect point between the best problem that you solve, the reason you started your business in the first place. You might have 25 problems that you solve, but there's always one or two, but you know, a few, but one more than any other that corresponds most to the emotional need of your targeted audience. So what I'm saying is if you take, if you find that intersect point, the best of that one thing out of the 25 things that you do or the five things that you do that is the, get the biggest emotional hook to your target audience. It's just a statement of, of mission or a statement of result. And you, you blow that up oversized, uncomfortably, Sesame Street style, and you repeat it. Um, that will, you will win attention, become the first choice ever over every single one of your competitors. And that's, how it works. So that's how you can apply it to business. Ask yourself, you know, in relation to the people who I want to pay attention to me, what is my free ice water? Right? And this, this idea of oversized imagery, making like that thing should take up two thirds of your landing page. And what that does is say someone goes on Google, they get 100 million results and they're clicking through the first 10. And they come to somebody who's taken two thirds of their landing page to say, I'm interested in you and your problems. So this is what we're about. We're interested in solving this problem for you. Then you can funnel them into the other 19 things that you do, right? So the wall drug by, by giving away this thing that everybody thing that everything de desperately needed, got people to go to their pharmacy and made it one of the most long standing successful small businesses in history. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, I, I intentionally kind of didn't dig as deep into some of these things as we could have because I wanted to leave some space and time to talk about a totally different venture that you're working on, but that it is so awesome that I wanted to make sure that we could give it its proper due. Sure. So talk to us about, and we're going to have the links in the show notes to your book and I encourage everybody to grab it, but talk to us about the project you're working on now because it's so very important. Well, huh, um, you know, in my life, I've seen a lot of things. You know, I, I often say that, you know, if you're somebody that's born with a lot of entitlement, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, if you're somebody, I wish I'd been born with more options, right? It's hard for you to, under, it can be very difficult to understand how people live that you know it's hard for anyone to understand how 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 so, you know you only know your own experience 
Okay. So I, in my early experience, you know, and, and throughout my life, especially my early life, I was witness to a, a tremendous amount of trauma, right? You know, in where I live, there was a lot of homelessness, a lot of drug addiction, a lot of gangs. And so, you know, those things exist as a result of trauma, right? So if you have a kid that grows up without a father, you don't see like nuclear families aren't normally producing gang members, you know, loving nuclear families, right? So, you know, trauma has always been an interesting issue, uh, an interesting subject to me because I feel like it's one of the driving forces of the human condition, not just with poor people, with everyone. You can be wealthy and be abandoned by your father. You can be wealthy and be psychologically abused and or something can happen to you and you can experience a lot of trauma. Trauma is like love. It is one of the, the drive, as I said, the driving forces of the human condition. It can drive us to accomplish the most amazing things in the world to get away from trauma or to achieve love, or it can drive us to self-destruct, self drug addiction, suicide. You know, it's a very powerful driving force. So there is a doctor. So I'm working on this project <laughs> and uh, about this medical innovation. There is a doctor in Chicago, and he's kind of like the Einstein of modern anesthesiology. And he figured out that PTS, post-traumatic stress, which normally has a D at the end of it as a disorder, as a mental disorder, that's actually not the case. Post-traumatic stress is not a D, it's an I. It's an injury. We have this gangle of nerves on each side of our voice box called the sympathetic nervous system. And whether it gets overwhelmed by anything, psychological abuse, sexual assault. I've been doing a lot of work in, uh, at Fort Bragg and Fayetteville, uh, so war. It, when this system gets overwhelmed, it, every time you have a, a fight or flight response in life, that feeling that you feel internally is coming from this sympathetic nervous system, this gangle of nerves on each side of your voice box. And it powers up and it keeps you alive, right? It's like it puts you into that take action mode. Well, if the trauma is extreme enough or episodic enough, it doesn't power back down. So your amygdala sends a signal to the nerves, it gets you into action and you try to survive. Say so you're a caveman and a tiger tries, you know, is regularly trying to get you and you always escape, it powers up and then you escape the tiger and then it powers back down. Well, say one day the tiger almost gets you and he gets a toe and you really think you're going to die or some other extreme trauma that's episodic. Uh, it's different for everybody. Then the system doesn't power back down. It stays hyperactive and then it starts sending the constant signal to your amygdala. And most people can have these symptoms and don't even know they have it. And you're looking at, anxiety. You're looking at waiting for the other shoe to drop, lack of sleep, hair trigger, you know, hypervigilance. These are all symptoms of uh, post-traumatic stress, but they're actually this physical system in your body. So what this doctor did is he took the shot that's been around from, for about 100 years. It has a simple amount of anesthetic, that, that the same amount of anesthetic or the same type of anesthetic that's used in an epidural, $2 worth. And he's figured out with the shot that's been around since 1925, he reconfigured it. And he figured out that he can power down this system. And uh, when it powers back up 20 minutes later, it powers up at baseline. And this is being done. This is the greatest medical innovation no one's ever heard of. Uh, the Special Forces uh, Command in, in Fort Bragg is doing 3,000 of these a year. There's a, uh, there's a private equity firm that's opened up a this opening up centers all over the United States called the Stella Center. The headquarters is in Chicago. Uh, they're doing thousands of these. 
And uh, 40% of the people getting them are, are, are sexual assault victims, 40% are warriors, former warriors, and 10% are probably bad childhoods and all sorts of stuff in, in between. So really it's a, an art film for theatrical release about just art and trauma and, as, and how trauma binds us. And trauma is this incredible force in the universe through the lens of this medical innovation that is, you know, especially in this time of COVID, you know, I mean, they say on their website at the Stella Center that maybe eight to 10% of the population is suffering from post-traumatic stress injury. I think before COVID, it was probably more like 25%. And those numbers have probably gone up. So what's, what's amazing, so I'm working on this uh, project. What's amazing is um, I'm, I'm in documenting it on film with an incredible team of talented people. And, and what's amazing is that so many people have this and don't know they have it. Well, clinically speaking, what's interesting about trauma is that trauma is relative. What to you might sound like, oh, that's not a big deal, to the next person is horrifying. You know, like you, to, to put this in the simplest language, you might be afraid of snakes while somebody else is afraid of spiders, right? But, you know, if you're afraid of snakes and you have an encounter with a snake, yeah, that's going to impact you less than somebody else. And, you know, trauma also just doesn't mean, you know, some people think trauma means you survived a mass shooting or uh, you were in a, a car crash. Trauma can be so many different things. And it's fascinating that you're working with this doctor who's developed this way to basically hit the reboot switch on the parasympathetic nervous system. And you can see it on a brain scan. Can I comment on just what you said? I think what you said is really profound. And I'd like to, Dr. Richard, I'd like to comment on what you just said. Sure. You know, before I met this doctor, okay, and he and I have become friends. His name is Dr. Eugene Lipov. You can Google him, okay? I would hear the words trauma is trauma. And it would always annoy me because I would say, really? Let's line mine up with yours, right? I would almost get offended by it. Then I started interviewing people from developing countries and I thought mine wasn't that bad, right? But what you said, I think, is so profound, Dr. Richard. This kind of, the thing is it's different for everybody, right? And, you know, when I, you know, was got to the London School of Economics, you know, I was probably very much driven by trauma, away from pain. I thought education and mater some material opportunity would mean no pain. Right. So I was being driven. Somebody else might become a drug addict from that. But for me, it drove me towards achievement. OK. And I thought when I got to this school of super smart people, it would solve all my problems because uh, I'd be around. Ignorance would not be around me. But what I found was a lot of kids with a tremendous amount of opportunity, many of which had been deeply traumatized, even though they came from wealthy families. There's a friend that I recently went to Chicago to support that comes from an incredibly wealthy family that had massive trauma issues. You know, his father had been entitled, so he became a drug addict young. His father, who was wealthy, his father died young and abandoned him young. And he had massive post-traumatic stress from this. And he did this treatment and it completely has altered the course of his life. So just to, you know, what you said is just so true, Dr. Richard, you know, like it's different for everyone that can trigger this thing into staying hyperactive right? That it doesn't have to be physical. It could be, you know, you could be in the wealthiest family in the world and it could be a highly abusive parent. And the thing is that this is a piece of hardware. It doesn't think. So it's interpreting you seeing your friend shot in front of you, you getting shot yourself, a sexual assault or a highly abusive parent psychologically. This system interprets it 
exactly the same mm -hmm. way. It yep. just flips the hardware switch. It's apathetic in that way. Uh, it doesn't care. It just, if it gets, if it gets uh, damaged enough, it stays up there. And then that signal that's normally helpful for survival, if you're in a dangerous situation, when it stays hyperactive, the signal reverses and it's constantly sending the signal to your amygdala saying that there's a threat when there isn't. And you know, with, without even getting into the physiological impact of this, you're getting neurotransmitters like cortisol and some other things that are, are showing up in your blood that are supposed to be there for a very finite period of time to help you get away from that saber-toothed cat. And now you're, you've got these things that are, are causing this perpetual cycle of neurotransmitter overload and the bad ones and all these other things. So that's another hyper profound yeah. thing that you just see. Then you're getting into ACEs, adverse yeah, childhood. So I, I don't want to do, I don't okay, want to okay, do all okay. this. But okay, okay, you got it. You're, but, you're, you're in charge. You're the captain. Okay. <laughs> but what's, what, but what's so cool is that you're, you're filming, you're making a film documenting this and, and you're going about it in a really interesting way, you know, with, you know, involving art in this too. So you know, tell us about, you know, when we can expect to see the film i think that you'll start to i think you'll start to hear about it in about 18 months okay it's for the it's, it's for theatrical release so we're going to go for all the major film festivals and award shows so just a little tease but it, it's 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 awesome that you're making this and and we're going to uh you know i'm going to have you back on the daily helping when this is getting ready to come out and we're going to really really take a deep dive in this, but I, I felt as though the work you're doing in this was just so profound and awesome that I needed to make sure we, we did it. It's the first time I've ever talked about it publicly. It's something I've been doing quietly in the background. You know, again, it's part of my amplification work, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, you know, it's funny. I, I want people to, you can see this on a brain scan, by the way. Um, you can see, you can have someone, you can scan their brain with a spec scan. You can see the hyperactive amygdala and give them these shots and wait a day or two and scan their brain again. And you will see a reduction. It's crazy instantly. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I'm honored that you, you know, I, I just really appreciate that you care about it and that you're interested in it. There we go. Well, listen, I am so grateful that you came on. I'm so grateful that you shared really interesting concept. I mean, The Iconist itself is a book that's fascinating and has application to everybody. So we are at the end of our odyssey together for now. And as you know, I wrap up every episode of my show by asking my guests this single question that what is your biggest helping, Jamie, the one most important takeaway you'd like somebody to leave with after hearing our conversation today? Else, can I say two words? You can say as many words as you want. Curiosity. As we get older, we lose our curiosity. Curiosity is a discipline. And despite whatever we've been through, focusing on what we have, human connection and relationships, which are our true net worth, not money. Money is what we have in terms of wealth is our net assets. It's not our worth. Our worth is our meaning and our relationships. Do we work in a life in a life of meaning and do we have good relationships? This, that's our net worth, right? So that's driven by curiosity and gratitude, finding what to be grateful for. We're hard, as you know, Dr. Richard, our minds because of our evolutionary biology are psychologically hardwired to be Velcro for the bad and Teflon for the good. 
So when you when you're curious and you focus on reframing things towards gratitude, no matter what bad happens, um, you get more good and you have a more positive outlook on life. Amen. Beautifully said. Jamie, tell us where people can find out more about you online, get their hands on the book, all that good stuff. Well, you can Google The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out or The Iconist book, and it'll come up on Amazon. And there's an audio book and Kindle and all those things. Um, you can go to theiconist.org if you want to reach out to me. I love to hear from people and you'll, you'll get a response from, you know, anybody that wants to talk to me. I love talking to people and I love hearing their stories and I love helping people. So you can always reach out to me on theiconist.org. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 The book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the Amazon for the book, you can also go into your local Barnes and Noble and it's available in most bookstores and, and buy it. Perfect. And, and we'll have links to everything Jamie Mustard at thedailyhelping.com in the show notes. Uh, but this was awesome. Jamie, thanks for coming on the show. I loved it. Loved it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really wonderful conversation. It was. And you even humored me. You humored me because I absolutely botched the quote uh, attributing something that FDR said to Winston Churchill. He didn't even correct me on it. So thank you for that. But, <laughs> but well. uh, in all seriousness, I loved having you on. Thank you for being here. And, and, and thank you as well to those of you listening to this. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend some time with me and Jamie today. If you like what you heard, go give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that's what helps other people find this show. But most importantly, Go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping, because the happiest people are those that help others. Mm-hmm.